0: it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda. We're together with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is a new type of episode which I'm going to plan on dropping from time to time, more of um, a little bit of a taste of my guiding style in Europe on, uh, on the tours, um, more different than a history lecture kind of style, which is the regular podcast format. I think that this, you know, just occasionally from time to time, will add a little more color. It's a little more colorful, gives a little bit more of a taste. It's not exactly a virtual tour, especially since this is only audio, but it's kind of like uh, that idea. And hopefully it will generate, generate interest in tours as well. Though I'm telling you stuff that I say on my tours, so you already have heard what I guide at these places. So maybe it's counterproductive in a way, but I think it will be fun and interesting and a little bit of a change of pace as well. And I'll have these episodes once in a while. So I'll start with one of the most commonly visited places and, and also one of the most famous uh, sites, And that's the old Jewish cemetery in Lublin, in Poland, with the primary focus of the episode being on one of the most prominent tzaddikim buried there, and that is, of course, the Chayze of Lublin. Um, The old Lublin Jewish cemetery is the oldest Jewish cemetery in Eastern Europe, so it has a lot of historic significance. The only older cemeteries are in Central and Western Europe, in Prague, in Germany, and places like that. But in Eastern Europe, the Lublin uh, Jewish cemetery is the oldest uh, existing one of course there may have been earlier ones that are have been destroyed and 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 uh, so, so on um, and uh, lublin was the center of commerce in the old polish kingdom the biannual market fairs were in yaroslav and lublin and the meetings of the uh, autonomous uh, Jewish uh, Governing Council, known as the Vad Ha'arba Ha'aratzis, the Council of the Four Lands, took place in Lublin and Yaroslav during those market gatherings. So Lublin was a major center and one of the oldest Jewish communities in the old Polish kingdom. Right at the beginning when we go in, there is the the fake cover. I mean, it's a real cover, but it's not of it's a non-authentic cover of Rybjankov Polak. Some had wanted to say that it is a Rybjankov Polak. It Presumably, is not since he was not he did not pass away in Lublin. He had already moved on. But Ryakov Polak was the um, was the first great rabbi to settle in Poland in the uh, 15th century. Um, he's considered the founding rabbi of Polish Jewry, and uh, he came from Prague. It was a whole story how he ended up there, and he ended up leaving uh, Lublin later on. So, even though it's not his cover, but since it's his fake cover. We occasionally speak about him, but more more so we speak about his prime disciple, Reb Sholem Shachna, and his cover is very real, not just real, it's the original Matzeva. It's this 500-year-old Matzeva. Reb Sholem Shachna founded the first yeshiva in Lublin, the first yeshiva in Poland, and was the great leader of Polish Jewry in the 16th century. He was the father-in-law and teacher of the Ramah, the teacher of the Marshal, and many others. He's the one of the the fa- fathers of of uh, of Torah jury of Poland for the next five centuries. So his cover is there, right in front of him. Interestingly enough, is is the remnants, just the bottom slice of the uh, matzeva of the of the tombstone of Rabbi Israel Horovitz, who we're going to get back to later when we talk about the Chayz of Lublin and the opposition to the Chayz of Lublin. Who is very much his opponent was the rabbi of Lublin, Rabbi Israel Horovitz. Um, he was known as the Reish HaBarzel, the Eisener Cup in Yiddish, and uh, he was from the rabbinical establishment. He was a great, uh, a great tzaddik, a great Torah scholar, and uh, he he will get back to his story and and his uh, rocky relationship with the Chayza during that time. So he's buried right next to Rabbi Shalom Shachna, not far from the Chayza, ironically. Uh, right next to there there's the kever um which i call the holiest jew in lublin history because it's a very ancient matzeva and it has a a right smack in the middle of this almost intact tombstone it has this this hole um right right in the middle and um who knows where the hole comes from if it comes from a storm or a cannonball or some who knows what type of Event caused this almost like perfect size hole in the middle, and every group is obsessed with it. They're always asking, "What's this? Who was this person? Why is there a hole there?" And I got sick and tired of saying I don't know, and I felt very, you know, like uh, unknowable—the fact that I didn't know. So instead, I started to say it was a holy Jew, and it's the holiest Jew in in the H- Lublin history because he has this hole in his cover. And I also used it recently to gauge the sense of humor of of a group. If it takes them more than three seconds to get the joke and roll their eyes and chuckle, then I know I have to explain things on a more elementary level for the rest of the trip. But if they get it right away, then I know we're a great group. Um, So that's the holiest Jew in the Lublin Cemetery. Further up the hill is, of course, the Marshal. Rabbi Shleim Maluria, one of the greatest... uh, um, um, Talmudic scholars and leaders in Jewish history altogether, in Polish Jewish history, in particular, is the rabbi in Lublin uh, about 500 years ago, and he wrote all his commentaries on Shas and Halacha and so many other things. A fascinating personality, a sharp personality, charismatic, strong leader, and prob- presumably somewhere in the same cemetery is also the Maharam of Lublin or mayor of Lublin. Um, the uh, Maharam who wrote the uh, commentary on Shas. We don't know where his cover is, or at least I don't. I've never seen it in, in there, but it's probably there somewhere. And of course, much of the cemetery has been destroyed, and it's, it's, it's an old one. And then we, so there's probably many other holy and special Jews and tzaddikim and simple and regular Jews of Lublin over the centuries as well. So we get, after all that, we're truly before all that, because he's almost at the beginning of the cemetery, but in, after all that, in terms of this uh, episode, we get to the Chayza of Lublin, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Horowitz, who is one of the greatest leaders in the history of the Hasidic movement, the one who brings the Hasidic movement to central Poland, the one who brings it to what we call Congress Poland, uh, the, one of the prime t- uh, students of the Noyem Ali Melech, the Rebbe Rebbe Melech, And even before that, he was the Talmud of Rebbe Shmuel Shmelke of Nicholsburg and of even of the Magad of Mizrich. He was 18 years old, I'm sorry, 28 years old, 27, 28 years old when the Maggid passed away. So he he had plenty of time to be by the magad himself. So he goes all the way back. He was born in 1745 and lived till 1815. Um, there's two reasons that I think that it's not a major Skula cover. They didn't market it yet to become some sort of major. Everyone goes there, but, uh, and, and, and we dive in there, and we hear stories, and it's wonderful, but it hasn't become like that whole scene like it is at some other places. And my two theories is that, number one, it's in the middle of Lublin. It's in the middle of this big city. And it's in the middle of this big, prominent cemetery where the marshal and other tzaddikim are buried. It's not some out of the out of the way shtetl where it's the only attraction. So there's no ayhel over it, no real ayhel. There's one that uh, Reich, uh, the Reichberg made uh, after the fall of communism in Poland. Maybe even before that, he was actually active in the seventies and eighties. That's a different story. There's no achnasas Archim nearby. There's no mikvah you know it's Lublin there's the yeshiban there's other things going on the he is not the only show in town in in Lublin the second reason why I think it has't become um, marketed as a major school Kever is that because his yard site is on T above which is a big downer um, and it you know it doesn't work out to make like a big party um, like it uh, like it is takes place at many of the other great tzaddikim. so but, um, uh, to me, the Chayza is a very important visit in all our trips. He First of all, where does that name come from? Where is the term that the Jewish people has bestowed upon him with awe and reverence? The Chayza of Lublin. The Chayza means the one who sees. What does it mean? He was able to see, He was able to see from one end of the world to the another. Ironically, it came from the fact that he wasn't able to see. He wanted to work on the purity of his eyes and things that he looks at, so he tied a kerchief around his eyes for a long period of time. I've seen different versions, a couple of years, three years, four years, five years, seven years, whatever it was, and that weakened the muscles in his eyes. So when he took this kerchief off of his eyes after all that time to work on his Shemir Sinai and to work on the holiness of what he looks at and what he doesn't look at, shouldn't look at anything inappropriate... And he takes it off after all that time, and of course the muscles in his eyes had weakened, so he was barely able to see anything. He was nearly blind. But that's exactly at that moment that his, 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 a, a, his vision on a higher plane, his spiritual vision was sharpened, and he was able to see everything. He was able to see me, saifa, at saifa. he was able to see all, he was able to see into the future. There's quite a few stories regarding that power that he had and how he used it, and uh, we'll get to that soon. Um, in his early years, he was known as Reb Lans- or Lansuter. Um, he, he, there was a town right near of Lansut. We always go to that town as well. We go to the Lansut Shul. It's a very prominent, beautiful, gorgeous shul. And in the back room of that shul was where the Chayze first opened his court. In the community sh- shul. So again, it uh, calls into question all of our preconceived notions about how the Hasidic movement in its early stages was radical and revolutionary against the establishment, when here, one of the most prominent leaders of the Hasidic movement, with all the opposition he faced, set up shop in the community uh, shul, which obviously, Davin Nusach Ashkena is not the new Nusach of the the Kabbalistic uh, form of prayer, the Arizal, what's later referred to um, as Sefard. Um and uh, and he 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 davens in that shul. He probably davened, maybe maybe he davened his own nusach, but he davened in the community shul. He didn't set up his own shtibl until much later. Could be in Lansut itself. Definitely in Lublin. By that time, he had his own shtibl which was a whole uh, issue until he got the license to open that shtibl But in any event, when he was still in Lansut, when he was Reb Itzik um so he was. He, was, uh, he had this back room in the Lanset Shul, and that's where he started to receive his students and pray for them. And, and that's when he started to become known as a Tzaddik. And this is in the lifetime of his Rebbe, the Rebbe the Meilach, or Meilach of L'Zhensk, which um, also became a story, the fact that he established his own court and had his own, um, his own following in his teacher's lifetime. Um, it is, it is, so, so that's something we see as well. Later on, he was known as the Lubliner Rebbe. He only came to be known as the Khaiz of Lublin, it seems, following his passing. It seems like he was never known as that in his own lifetime. He was either known in his early years as Revitical Anceter, and later on as, as uh, the Lubliner Rebbe. Either way, he was one of the four prime students of the Rebbe of Meilich, and uh, there was a, a saying that the Rebbe of Meilich's brother, the Rebbe of used to say about those four students. He would say, paraphrased the pasuk and Bereishis: eshagan Nahar the river leaving the the garden of Eden, um, the Gan Eden. So the Eden is the Bal it's the source of all. Um, and the Nahar, the river that goes out, is the Magad of Mizrich, the Rebbe of all these uh, prominent uh, students uh, of, uh, that we mentioned. And LaHashka uh, says Hagan, the gun, the garden where it where it starts to grow and flourish, is the Rebbe of Zisha said that's my brother, the Rebbe of Meilach. That's where Hasidus spreads and all the students that he has. And he said we show me a parade of a the four. The four uh, tributaries of this river separate from the Gan, and that is the four great uh, disciples of the Rebbe, Rebbe, that's Rebbe of Meilich. That's Rambanu of Remenov, Menachem Remenov, and it is uh, um, it is the Kajnitz R'magid, or Israel Hopstein, the Kajnitz R'magid, and the Apta Rav, Rabbi Shmuel Heschel of Apta, who later was in Meshipesh, and of course the Lublina Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak Horowitz, the Chayze of Lublin. So the the um, that's 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 how R- the Rebbe used to phrase it. So he starts his court in Ramielov's lifetime. Much much has been said about it. Uh, was was he? You know, was it was there opposition to it? Was was it with his permission? There's all kinds of different versions that um, he separate from Lezhensk because Ramielov was getting older and more secluded. Um, was there tension between the two? And there's Um, a couple of different versions of if there was or wasn't, so I definitely can't be the one to decide to know if there was or not. Um, So when he moves from Lansut, he was in a couple of other temporary places after Lansut, but he moves from Lansut to Lublin. He moves, excuse me, from Lonsen to a couple of other places I just said, but eventually he moves to Lublin. And this is penetrating deeper into Poland and more significantly into a large, urban, ancient, central Jewish community with its established customs, with its, with its established kahal, with its with its established shuls, with its established rabbinate. And here a, the fact that a, a Hasidic tzaddik is coming into it is very significant. And that's why he faced some opposition. And that's why there's an important book that just recently was published a couple of years ago by Dr. Uriel Gelman, um, who wrote a book, Shv- Shvilim Hayotzim Me Me-Lu- Lublin, The Pathways That Leave Lublin. The first half of the book is about the Chayzeh. The second half is about Pshischa. It's absolutely fascinating. As far as I know, it has not been translated into English. It is. It's a fantastic work. Um, one of my more valuable books that I referred to, and he really reworked the whole thing, Uh, really did groundbreaking research and examined it from new angles, Uh, really, really a fresh perspective on the whole story of how the Hasidic movement spreads in Poland, which is something we really didn't understand uh, until his book uh, was published, and uh, it's an excellent work. Uh, I heard him uh, lecture on it once, and he he mentioned... uh, he mentioned that that he did a lot of deconstruction in the book, and he may have forgotten to do reconstruction afterwards. In other words, he he you know took it apart exactly what was and what wasn't, but he didn't really put it back together. In other words, he didn't he felt he didn't give enough of a strong sense of what it yes was. He get he he gave much more of a sense of what it wasn't, uh, um, and 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 how and how many things have been misunderstood about the origins of uh, the Hasidic movement in Poland as well. That's debatable. It's a, it's an excellent work. Either way, um, what's interesting is is when he comes to Lublin, and now there is this Ali larego He has many, many Hasidim. I mean, they, they, the numbers they throw around say, refer to it as the thousands. I highly doubt it was the thousands. But the numbers... Um, seemingly don't add up, but it, many, many, we could say it was many, many uh, followers would flock to Lublin to seek his advice, to seek his blessing, and and, uh, and there was an assessment of one of his uh, students, Uri Ostrelisk, one of his prime uh, Talmidim, who said, Uri Avstrelisk said that um, when you go to Lublin, it feels like that Lublin is, uh, is, is like the land of Israel, and the courtyard of the beis medrash on Saroka Street is Yerushalayim, and the beis medrash of the Chayzeh is like the beis hamikdash. The room of the Chayzeh is the uh, is the heichal, and the and the place where the Chayzeh sits is, himself is the kodesh Akadashim, And then he said, Mitach and and the shchina you know speaks from the Chayzeh, And then if you understand that, you understand. What the what it means to go to the Chayyuz? So you have this fascinating um, assessment of, of a student of the Chayyuz and what it meant to go visit him, and that brings me to another interesting point. First of all, it's related to another point about how um, in in the post-Sabbatian era, the post-Shabbatsvi era, there's this uh, there's this movement towards seeing as substitutes uh, for. Uh, in the Litvish world, they started to say the base medrash, the Torah, the the, the Shtender is the kaddish Kadashim, phrases like that. And in the Hasidic world, the Aliyah L'regel to the tzaddik, going to the it's like going to the base and it's that's it, it, a, a sociological phenomenon, which is interesting in its own merit. But that's not what I wanted to focus on. What I wanted to say it was another point is that an interesting thing about the Chayza of Lublin is that he authored his own sfarim, one of the earliest tzaddikim to do so. Um, he wrote in his younger years, when he was still in lansut. He wrote his own Svarim, Man, unlike many other tzaddikim, who it was written by students, by by uh, by, um, by their family members, by by other assistants. And he wrote three of them at least: Zeis Zikarain, Zikarain Zeis, and Divrei Emes. And they were not published in his lifetime. There were some; a couple of them were published a few years after his passing. Um, others were published many years later, and even after they were published, that's not what uh, what made the Chayza famous, and that's not what until today they're not part of the the canon. The the they're not like the the Nahim Ali Melech, or the Tanya or the Marv Shemesh or or one of the main you know fundamental s'farim of Hasidus. They're great. They're important. They're studied. But they're not—they're—they're they're not what makes the chayza the chayza. So that's a very curious phenomenon. On one hand, he's actually writing his own sfarim. This is his own words. This is his own stuff. And yet they're not published by him. They're not published till much later. Even when they're published, they don't attain achieve the popularity of some of the other more famous sfarim in the history of the annals of the movement. And that—and that I think is because of this thing that Rabbi Uri Estrellis just described. The Chayza was the was in an experiential uh, environment. You 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 basked in his presence. You went to the Chayza. You spoke to him. You heard him speak. You heard his Torah. You saw him. You were blessed by him. You davened with him. It was a it was it was the being with him. It was it wasn't it wasn't as much his his teachings um, which could be studied later, which of course are important. Um, and, uh, and and that's and that's a, a very very interesting thing about the Chayzin. That's very quite unique, and he he kind of makes that impact on the Hasidic movement of this reaching the masses. Um, the Baal Shemt have never reached the masses, as far as we know, neither did the Demagir, likely not even the Reber of Meilich. The Chayzin is the first uh, one that that the masses come to him, and he is there for them as as he sees his his his. Uh, his, his uh, purpose is his 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 job his uh, in other words his um, his uh, his purpose in life his goal as a leader um, he like I said he had gone in his youth to the maggid to Schmelchem Nicholsberg to the uh, to the Rebbe of myo but by now he had you know reached his own and he had quite a few famous students later on some of the most famous, uh, the Hasidic leaders of the next generation were his students. Reb David Biederman of Lelav, who was also a Talmud of the name of and Reb Kalman, um, Halevi Epstein, the, the Marv Shemesh, who uh, was also Talmud of the name of the Melech, the Bnei Yisashkar, uh, um, uh, um, Reb Tzvi Yerush of, uh, of, um, of Zidich of the Sab Kadish of Radashitz, um, the Sar Shalom of Bells, um, the uh, you could go on and on, Reb Meishe title bohem, the Ismah Meishe, and the Kamarner, first Kamarner Rebbe, and Rucheskel um, of who's later on, that's Majid, Reb Yaakov R'yarat and of course, most famously, there's the whole Pshischa branch, Reb Yaakov Yitzchak of Pshischa, the Yid HaKadosh, Reb S'mecha Bonam of Pshischa, the Kotzker, Yitzchak Avarka, the Chidush and many, 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 many others. Uh, so some of the most prominent leaders in, in the Hasidic movement, uh, maybe most importantly, there's also the Arla Shamayim or Mayor of Apta, who's seen by many as to be the, uh, the successor to the Chayzeh in many ways, um, and, and uh, although many can claim that as well. So the, the, uh, the Chayzeh, um, like I said, he tied this kerchief around him and, and he, in order not to see, and he was able to see afterwards everything. He had a student who tried it, but it didn't work. So he, the Chayza told him, Take off the kerchief. You're not uh, you know, don't do this. He said, Why not? He said, Because I did it not to see. You're doing it to be able to see. So that's all the difference. That's a very deep and wise uh, saying. Um, one of his main students uh, described how the I think it was Raf Tali eruptions, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was a different one, described how the maybe it was maybe it was, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm getting mixed up here. That the first 12 days of Nisan, some communities have a custom to re- to read, uh, the portion of the Torah of each Nasi that they, the carbon they brought on that day in Parshas Nasi in the Torah to, to the, 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 the carbon of the Nasi that they brought that day, um, in the first 12 days of Nisan. So the Chayza taught that those 12 days are corresponding to the 12 months of the year. And every day during the first 12 days of Nisan, he would write down um, what's going to happen the, the corresponding month that year? Uh, amazing. And the year of his passing, he only wrote the first seven days of Nisan. He didn't write past that because he foresaw that he was going to pass away during the month of Av that year. And therefore, he wouldn't have the power to be able to see beyond that. Um, the nature of his court and leadership is that, like I said, he was the first one for the masses, the first one who saw the tzaddik as the one responsible for the worldly needs of his followers. Because he said, the earlier tzaddikim said, we're going to teach Hasidus, we're going to teach people how to be better Jews, how to serve Hashem better, how to connect to Hashem, tveikis and davening, and all that better. He said, I see a Jewish people that needs help, they're broken. They 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 need their they need a livelihood they need good health they need help with their children so first the tzaddik has to take care for their worldly needs he has to pray for them he has to bring down sustenance for them and help them and bless them and pray for them and everything that they need in this world once they are connected to him in that way once they they are they are they 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 are able to they're able to. You know, it resonates with them, then his message, then his spiritual message can resonate with them as well. He took it upon himself from an early age to pray for the needs for the Jewish people. That was central to his philosophy of leadership, and he sacrificed everything for it. Um, one of his main themes was the humility of the tzaddik and his responsibility to his, his people. He said a tzaddik who's not, who doesn't have humility, extreme humility, is not considered a leader. Is not considered a tzaddik. And his own humility was to an extreme. In one of his personal writings, he wrote that he, it's important for himself, for him to remember that always, that everyone is greater than h- in me. He writes, "Everyone, it's important for me to remember that everyone is greater than me, even the cleaning woman in my house. And when he would recite a phrase from prayer aloud regarding sinners, I don't recall which phrase it was, but I believe it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was the words in that the wicked of the land should return to you, he would cry out, especially me, which is astounding. He would say that aloud. Uh, students of his testified that he'd regularly have these spontaneously cry out in the middle of his tish Friday night, things like, Woe to the generation that I am its leader, and other similar things like that. So his humility was quite extreme. Um, his opponents, uh, were, he had opponents from all sides. The maskilim on one hand were his opponents, and the rabbinic and communal establishment were also his opponents. Uh, rabbi Israel Horowitz, like I said. At uh, one time, Rabbi Israel Horowitz said, Why does everyone come to you? Why do they all come to you? You're not the rabbi of the town. Why do people come from all over Poland to be with you and to hear your teachings? So he said, I never asked them to come. They came on their own. So Israel Arvid said, well, just tell them to stop coming. So he said, that's a great idea. So the next time he got up by the Tish and he told all his Hasidim to stop coming because he has nothing to offer them. He's not a great person. He's not a tzaddik. There's no reason to come to him. So... He meets the Rav again, or Azriel Haravitz, the Eisner Cup, and he says, No, did you take my advice?" He says, yeah, I told them." He said, "But now they're coming even more." He said, "Why? Why is that?" He said, "Because now they think I'm modest. Also, I'm not just a Tadik, I'm also modest." So that's a, uh, you know, it's a story that's said. You know, you have to know that, the, but there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, tension between the two, to say the least. There also was tension between the Chayza and one of his prime students, the Yid Hakadosh of Pshischa. There's much more legend than fact about that. Um, a lot has been made about it, about the two. About the two. Uh, Real Gelman demonstrates that it was dramatized ex post facto. Probably, he theorizes that it was in light of the Kutsk Ishbitz split. That, in order to, which was a very tense and a very uh, um, very intense, very uh, very you know uh, not clean split. We'll say between Ishbitz and Kutzka. I believe I discussed that in another episode. So in order to give it some sort of sense of tradition, these type of splits, so retroactively they made the split of Lublin and Pshischa into a one of great tension as well. But it seems that it was not very tense at all. The Chayza himself established his own court in the lifetime of the Naimli al and the Yidd HaKadosh of Pshischa simply did the same thing. He attracted some of the uh, students of the Chayza to go along with him. He offered a different brand of uh of, uh, of, Hasidus, of teachings, and it uh, and, uh, seems to have been, have been somewhat amicable and uh, not, not, not very uh, tense at all. But it's very likely that there was some sort of element, at least between the followers. <laughs> um, they're all, they're definitely, that definitely is a very likely possibility. In the last years of the Chayza of Lublin, there was the Napoleonic Wars, And the great tzaddikim of the day attached a lot of mystical significance um, uh, to it, pro and anti, and it became like this messianic tension. The attempts at hastening the arrival of Mashiach. And this leads to, a couple of years later, to the great fall of the Chayzeh, the Nefila G'dayla, the great fall of the Chayzeh. And it's again very important here to separate history from legend. Um, The great fall of the Chayzeh takes place in Simchas Torah that year. And allegedly, him and his two great friends, who all three passed away that year, the Koshnitzer Magid, the Rebbe of Rimenov, and the Chayz of Lublin, all three Eretz Rasha, the year 1815, all three passed away. Excuse me. And um, and, the, uh, and the and the and they had wanted to hasten the arrival of Mashiach in this post-Napoleonic world, um, who had you know just recently been. In, invading Russia, where Poland was a part of at this time, after the partitions. And the um, and the Kajnitzar Magid passes away out of and the plan was to bring Mashiach over Simcha's Taira. And the Chayze of Lublin did not get the the memo before Sukkos. He didn't have social media, he didn't have instant, uh, you know, he didn't get a WhatsApp, so he didn't know that that the Kajnetser had passed away, and the two of them, just him and Renachamendel of were not able to do it together. So... The the bringing Mashiach didn't work, and in the story, he falls out of his second story window, gets very hurt, and he um, is is basically paralyzed. Um, he was not got very sick. He was unable to function for the most part for the next year until he passed away on Tishabov that year. Um, the primary reason, the primary person responsible for the legends associated with this whole story. In, which have little basis in reality, is Martin Buber's book, Goig U Goyg, and it talks a lot about the last years of the Chais, and especially his relationship and alleged dispute with his student, the Yid HaKadosh of Pshischa. Much of the book is not based on real events at all, yet it has somewhat tainted the perception of both figures, both uh, Yid HaKadosh of Pshischa and the Chais of Lublin, uh, in the collective memory until today. But we have this grateful on Zemech that's substantiated in fact, and his students help him up, and they find him, and it's considered a terrible thing. David Asaf, Professor David Asaf, has this amazing article in one of his books about the fall of the Chayza, and the different versions, a lot of mythology, and a lot of reality, and a lot of theory, uh, all uh, around this great fall of the Chayza. So he definitely fell, and the Hasidic version is, is that he was battling... The forces of impurity, forces of evil, who did not want him to hasten the arrival of Mashiach, and this is happening on a very mystical plane, and he was unable to. The the, the forces of the Satan, of the with um, the uh, the uh, in, in the, in the mystical forces, the spiritual forces, were able to to defeat him, and and were not. You know, he was unsuccessful in bringing Mashiach and therefore it's a fall, it's not just a physical fall, it's also the fall that it didn't happen. What he, his goal that he had set out for himself was unsuccessful, presumably because the Qajnat Surmagid had passed away. Um, that's the Hasidic version. There is there's a Haskalah version. The Maskilim, who were great opponents of the Chayza, they spread uh, malicious uh, rumors about the Chayza that he and his Hasidim had been imbibing too much alcohol, on the Simchas Torah festivities, and therefore that led to his fall. Um, and then there was there's the theory that David Asaf himself brings, which that then in, in a, a uh, because of other writings of the Chayza, the Chayza writes in again these mystical things that I'm not so familiar with, um, and I don't I don't know how to explain them. But the Chayza himself writes about himself. That he and I've seen this about um, the the Marvashemesh, and I've seen this written about other tzaddikim, that they reach some sort of spiritual level and some sort of mystical um, intensity that they've like like this hispastus of Gashmius. Their neshama separates from the guf, they completely leave this world and they become become into the uh, into the into the Ein of God and of godliness, and they're physical life, ends at that point. And it's like this, this, this Hishtaikus, this high level of dveikas and Hashem, of connecting to God, which again, I can't uh, explain, but it's a historical fact that the Chayzeh writes about it, and it's a historical fact that the, the uh, Ma'ar Shemesh writes about it and other tzaddikim. So Asaf theorized that this was along similar uh, lines. The Chayzeh predicted when he was sick he said that my opponents, both the rabbinical opponents and the maskilim opponents, they are going to celebrate when I pass away. Because they see I'm sick and dying, they're going to celebrate. He says, I predict, I promise you, that everyone will be in mourning and everyone will be fasting on the day of my passing. And sure enough, the Chayzev Lublin passed away on Tisha B'Av. This, of course, is not the ending. This is what I do on trips. Either I run out of things to say, or I'm tired of talking about this particular person or topic. So at some point, I say to the group, "We got to get moving now. We talked enough. Let's dive in and then move along to the next next spot." So that's how we'll end this episode as well. This is Yehuda with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehudagaber for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.